Welcome back to Corruption of Child Protective Services. I am your host, David Shore. On this episode, we're going to discuss the McMartin Preschool uh, Trial. And what we're going to discuss is about, from beginning to end, how this whole witch hunt started. And how the McMartin Preschool was where our current witch hunt against fathers and against families all started. Also, we're going to be going over the John Stoll case and how an innocent man went to prison for something he really did not do. And how in both cases, a divorce was involved. Now this, you can find on Wikipedia. You find it also in the Michigan Innocence Project. The McMartin Preschool Trial was a daycare sexual abuse case in the 1980s, prosecuted by the Los Angeles District Attorney, Ira Reiner. Members of the McMartin family who operated a preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, were charged with numerous acts of sexual abuse of children in their care. Accusations were made in 1983. Arrests and the pretrial investigation took place from 1984 to 1987, and trials ran from 1987 to 1990. The case lasted seven years. I will repeat that for my listeners. The case lasted seven years, but resulted in no convictions. And all charges were dropped in 1990. By the case's end, it had become the longest and most expensive in American history. The case was part of daycare sex abuse hysteria, a moral panic over alleged satanic ritual abuse in the 1980s and early 1990s. Like I said, this started back in the 80s. Now, people say, well, what about Adam Walsh? What happened to him was terrible. I would not wish that on anyone. In fact, I will be discussing that in detail and how a serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer, and this came from the Florida State Police and the Hollywood Police Department, at least members of that, that stated that they had evidence proving Jeffrey Dahmer and not the transient Otis Tooley as she committed the crime. But let's, let's start this off, shall we? The initial allegations... In 1983, Judy Johnson, mother of one of the Manhattan Beach, California preschool young students, reported to the police that her son had been sodomized by her estranged husband and by McMartin teacher Ray Bucky. Ray Bucky was the grandson of school founder Virginia McMartin and son of administrator Peggy McMartin Buckley. Johnson's belief that her son had been abused began when her son had painful bowel movements. Uh, 
What happened next is still disputed. Some sources state that at that time, Johnson's son denied her suggestion that his preschool teachers had molested him, whereas others say he confirmed the abuse. Already we're having contradictions. We have on the one side Judy Johnson stating that her son had said that he had been abused, that he had been sodomized. That he had been molested. In addition, Johnson also made several more accusations, including that people at the daycare had sexual encounters with animals. That, quote, Peggy drilled a child under the arms, unquote, and, quote, Ray flew in the air, unquote. Ray Buckley was questioned but was not prosecuted due lack of evidence. The police then sent a form letter to about 200 parents of students at the McMartin School stating that their children might have been abused and asking the parents to question their children. The text of the letter reads as follows. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this was back in 1983. This is from the police department. Now, mind you, they had no evidence proving that any kind of abuse was going on. Just an accusation. It is dated September 8th, 1983. It reads, Dear Parent, This department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. Ray Buckley, an employee of Virginia McMartin Martin's preschool was arrested September 7th, 1983 by this department. This department meaning the police department. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary for a complete investigation. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student at the preschool. We are asking your assistance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts including oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy possibly committed under the pretense of, quote, taking the child's temperature, unquote. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Buckley to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Buckley tie up a child is important. Please complete the enclosed information form and return it to this department in the enclosed stamp return envelope as soon as possible. We will contact you if circumstances dictate same. We ask you, please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family. 
do not contact or discuss the investigation with Ray Buckley, any member of the accused defendant's family, or employees connected with the McMartin Preschool. Okay, let's go back, shall we? Let's go back when this whole thing began. Let me reread that first part. In 1983, Judy Johnson, mother of one of the Manhattan Beach, California preschool young students, reported to the police that her son had been sodomized by her estranged husband and by McMartin teacher Ray Buckley. Ray Buckley was the grandson of school founder Virginia McMartin and son of administrator Peggy McMartin Buckley. Johnson's belief that her son had been abused began when her son had painful bowel movements. What happened next is still disputed. Some sources state that at that time, Johnson's son denied her suggestion that his preschool teachers had molested him, whereas others say he confirmed the abuse. The only thing they have is Peggy drilled a child under the arms and Ray flew in the air. Well, according to what the police are saying, that they had proof that molestation was going on, that there were things going on, they accused them. Do you remember the read technique? First part is accused. They're accusing them. Well... When we come back, I'm going to dive deeper into this. But Johnson was diagnosed with and hospitalized for acute paranoid schizophrenia. And in 1986 was found dead in her home from complications of chronic alcoholism before the preliminary hearing concluded. So... Let's, this was Judy Johnson. So Judy Johnson was diagnosed with and hospitalized, hospitalized for acute paranoid schizophrenia. I bet if the police would have known that ahead of time, that may have made a difference. Then again, paranoid schizophrenia. How do you know if the person's telling the truth and if the person is lying? When we come back, we will get into the interviewing and examining of the children. But mark my words, this is back when they allow pretty much anything. Sounds like nothing has changed. If it has, please feel free to contact me. I really want to hear the other side. We will be back. And welcome back. Well, they had interviewing techniques, but as you're going to start seeing, their techniques weren't exactly helpful, and especially to places like the McMartin Preschool and to men such as Ray Buck Bucky and... Judy Johnson's estranged husband. 
So let's see how the interviewing went. Interviewing and examining the children. Several hundred children were then interviewed by the Children's Institute International, CII, a Los Angeles-based abuse therapy clinic run by Key McFarlane. McFarlane. The interviewing techniques used during investigations of the allegations were highly suggestive and invited children to pretend or speculate about supposed events. By spring of 1984, it was claimed that 360 children had been abused. Astrid Heppenstahl Hager performed medical examinations and took photos of what she believed to be minute scarring, which she stated was caused by anal penetration. Journalist John Earl believed that her findings were based on unsubstantiated medical histories. Later research demonstrated that the methods of questioning used on the children were extremely suggestive, leading to false accusations. Others believed that the questioning itself may have led to false memory syndrome among the children questioned. Now, False memory syndrome is just that. You can't remember anything. You say you don't remember. And then someone says, well, don't you remember when this happened? You were alone at this time? We'll go more into that in the next episode. Others believe that the questioning itself may have led to false memory syndrome among the children questioned. Only 41 of the original 360 children ultimately testified in the grand jury and pretrial hearings, and fewer than a dozen testified at the actual trials. They had 360, and they decided to go with 41. I think as we go along, we'll find out the reason why they only had the 41. Maybe they decided they only needed 41. Or maybe those 41 were the most credible. Michael P. Maloney, a clinical psychologist and professor of psychiatry, reviewed videotapes of the children's interviews. Maloney, testifying as an expert witness on interviewing children, was highly critical of the techniques used, referring to them as improper, coercive, directive, problematic and adult directed in a way that forced the children to follow a rigid script. He concluded that, quote, many of the kids' statements in the interviews were generated by the examiner, unquote. Transcripts and recordings of the interviews contained far more speech from adults than children and demonstrated that, despite the high Highly coercive interviewing techniques used. Initially, the children were resistant to interviewers' attempts to elicit disclosures. The recordings of the interviews were instrumental in the jury's refusal to convict by demonstrating how children could be coerced to giving vivid and dramatic testimonies without having experienced actual abuse. 
the techniques used were shown to be contrary to the existing guidelines in California for the investigation of cases involving children and child witnesses. Wow. So, this Michael P. Maloney pretty much torpedoed the state's case. Around that same time, there was a man named John Stoll. This from the University of Michigan Law. They have a exoneration program. The title of it is Other California's Child Sex Abuse Hysteria Cases. From 1984 through 1986, at least 30 defendants were convicted of child sex abuse and related charges and sentenced to long prison terms in a series of interrelated cases in Kern County, California, and an additional eight defendants accepted plea bargains that kept them out of prison. Over time, 20 of the defendants who were sentenced to prison were exonerated the earliest in 1991 and the latest in 2008. Obviously, they decided something wasn't right. Somebody did. Who was that somebody? The California Innocence Project. In most most of these exonerations, the children who had testified that they had been abused recanted their testimony. In all of the exonerations, there was evidence that the complaining witnesses, some as young as four years old, had been coerced or persuaded by the authorities to make false accusations. Ms. Stigden, are you listening? Let me repeat that part again for you, Ms. Stigden, so you can understand. And remember, this is back in the 80s and 90s. In most of these exonerations, the children who had testified that they had been abused recanted their testimony. In all of the exonerations, there was evidence that the complaining witnesses, some as young as four years old, had been coerced or persuaded by the authorities to make false accusations. Folks, this happens more often than you think. False accusations. People say, well, children don't lie. No, but if they're told to say something that they don't know is a lie, you're not exactly stating that they are lying, but the words they're saying may not be true. The current county cases are the oldest and largest of several groups of prosecutions that occurred in a wave of child sex abuse hysteria that swept through the country in the 1980s and early 1990s. Some, but not all, of these cases include allegations of satanic rituals. Remember Pizzagate? Many focused on daycare centers. Nationally, there have been dozens of exonerations in child sex abuse hysteria cases. Now we're going to get into Mr. Stoll. And for those that think that he is just stating that he's innocent, just trying to get away with it, let me read 
John Stoll first fell under suspicion on June 10, 1984, when his ex-wife, Anne Carlin, called the Kern County Sheriff's Department and said she believed that on a recent visit with Stoll, their six-year-old son, Jed, had been molested by Grant Self, who rented Stoll's pool house. Stoll and Carlin had gone through a bitter divorce, and Carlin was angry that a judge had granted joint custody over Jed. This is information that any media could get their hands on. When Kern County officials questioned Carlin, they asked whether she suspected Stoll of abusing their son. At first, she said she never considered that he would do that, but she later hinted that it was possible. At that this time, Hysteria over child sex abuse had become widespread throughout Kern County. Based on Carlin's statements, police launched a full-fledged investigation to determine whether Jed had been sexually involved with John Stoll and other adults, and whether there was any other victims, despite the fact there was absolutely no evidence to suggest this. Let me repeat that, and especially to you, Miss Stigden, despite the fact there was absolutely no evidence to suggest this. Remember due process? You're supposed to have evidence stating that a crime actually com- was committed and not, hey, that person robbed that bank over there because the person was walking down the street at the same time when the bank was being robbed. When we come back, we will continue with this. And all I'm doing is just passing on information, but I am emphasize certain parts, and especially to a certain individual, because right now the state of Indiana is going through a lawsuit involving the DCS director as well as the governor of Indiana. I do not know if it has been settled. All I do know is that the judge cleared the way for the lawsuit to continue. We will be right back. Welcome back to the show. You know... The more I read this and the more we get into it, it's no wonder that CPS is the most hated in the world. I'm not just talking the United States. I am talking countries like Ghana, Nigeria, Ireland, United Kingdom, even Germany. But hey, they keep on saying in the best interest of the child... Yet why are good families being split apart while other families who are abusing their children, they do nothing. They leave them alone. What is the reason? What, the uh, product doesn't look right? The product uh, might show some signs of wear? Or maybe the product just isn't the model that 
the buyer wants. As we continue, when Kern County officials questioned, oh, Kern County officials interviewed Jed as well as five friends, his who were known, come over to Stoll's house to play. All of the boys were between six and eight years old at the time. When interviewed by investigators, Jed said that he had been forced to perform sexual acts by Margie Grafton, Grafton's live-in boyfriend, Tim Palumbo, Palo, Palomo, and Grant Self. Jed was reluctant to talk about his father at first, but eventually he also accused Stoll of sexually abusing him. Using highly suggestive questioning techniques, investigators also elicited allegations of abuse from other boys. One friend of Jed's said he had been molested by Stoll because he was afraid that if he didn't, the authorities would deport his mother, an undocumented Mexican immigrant. Remember what I said? About immigrants and the poor? The other boys initially denied that they had been sexually assaulted by anyone. But after being questioned repeatedly and at length and being promised that if they admitted being abused, everything would be all right and they'd be able to go home. They gave statements saying they too had been sexually abused by Stoll, Grafton, pa Palomo, and Self. There were major inconsistencies among the children's statements. Nonetheless, all four defendants were arrested in June of 1984 and charged with child sex abuse. Hmm. Isn't that real nice? Inconsistencies. But hey, they charged them. They convicted them. Prior to the trial, the defense requested that medical examinations be performed on the children. But the prosecution argued this would be an unnecessary violation of the children's privacy, and the judge agreed. Well, I thought this was a molestation case. Shouldn't they have a uh, medical examination to prove something happened? Let's go on. The defense also attempted to present testimony by a psychologist named Dr. Roger Mitchell, who had conducted psychological examinations of Grafton and Palomo that apparently showed they did not fit the profile of a sexual predator, but the judge refused to allow this testimony. Well, that's a violation of their due process because you're supposed to be able to call witnesses, including expert witnesses. You can see who's running this court. On September 24th, 1984, the defendant's joint, joint trial began. Six boys testified against Stoll, claiming that he and his co-defendants had sexually abused them. Much of their testimony was contradictory, and there was no other evidence to support their claim. Hmm. 
Nonetheless, based on the children's testimony, in September 1985, a jury convicted all four defendants of a total of 36 counts of child molestation. Stoll was convicted on 17 counts and sentenced to 40 years in prison. Remember, much of their testimony was contradictory and there was no other evidence to support their claim. Shortly after the trial, at least two of the children recanted their testimony. Two out of 36. On December 18, 1989, the Supreme Court of California reversed the convictions of Grafton and Palomo, concluding that the psychological exams conducted by Dr. Mitchell had been improperly excluded at trial, and that, given the inconsistencies in the children's testimony, and the lack of physical evidence, Dr. Mitchell's testimony could easily have affected the jury's decision. They were released, and charges were dismissed in 1990. Now remember, that is Grafton and Palomo. That is two of Stoll's friends and co-workers. Stoll remained incarcerated, however because Dr. Mitchell's testimony was not at issue in his case. Stoll should have had Dr. Mitchell do an examination on him as well. Stoll wouldn't have been convicted. Stoll's attorney eventually persuaded the Northern California Innocence Project to investigate his case. Innocent project investigators tracked down the child witnesses, now adults, and in interviews. Four completely recanted their testimony, and one said he did not remember being abused. Only Jed Stoll stood by his original testimony. Not looking good for John Stoll right now. His own son is sticking by his own testimony. You're probably saying, well, then John Stoll did it, if his son keeps on saying he did it. On December 26, 2002, Stoll filed a petition for writ of habeas corpus in Kern County Superior Court, arguing that his conviction was based on false testimony. He also alleged that Kern County CPS workers and police used coercive and manipulative interviewing techniques that resulted in unreliable testimony of the child witnesses. At his evidentiary hearing, all of the child witnesses testified again, four recanted, one reported having no memory of being abused, and Jed maintained that he was abused by his father. Stoll's attorneys argued that Jed's mother had prejudiced him against Stoll. Isn't that real nice? On April 30th, 2004, the Honorable John Kelly of the Kern County Superior Court vacated Stoll's conviction, finding that the techniques investigators used to question the children resulted in unreliable testimony. Four days later, on his 61st birthday, Stoll was released from prison after prosecutors dismissed all charges. He served 20 years in prison, the longest sentence of any of the wrongfully convicted child sex abuse defendants who were exonerated in Kern County. The California Attorney General and State Board of Control investigated the case, and on May 8, 
14th, 2006, announced their determination that Stoll had not committed any of the crimes of which he was convicted, and he was awarded $704,700 as compensation for the years he spent in prison. Separately, in 2009, Kern County agreed to pay Stoll $5.5 million for his wrongful prosecution and imprisonment. And if you think that doesn't happen anymore in this country, you are sadly mistaken. More and more people slowly are being exonerated because of false testimonies like this. Forensic interviewers, some of which don't even show up to trial because CPS convinces the courts don't need them. Remember, they said they didn't need a medical examination to prove that uh, something happened. Are you starting to see the bigger picture? Are you starting to see that this is more about in the best interest of the state, not in the best interest of the child or children? Are you starting to see that this... CPS, Child Protective Services, destroys families. They've been tearing them apart for over 400 years. And they're going to continue. Why do I say that? Well, look at what I've told you through the beginning of this program. Each episode shows their abuse. Each episode shows that they do not care about you, the family, you, the wife, you, the husband, or you, the child. It's all about, okay, like the in the emperor's new groove. The emperor says, it's all about me. Well, that's what it is. It's all about CPS. It's all about how much money they can get for the child or children what they can do to split up families who are doing nothing more than raising happy, healthy children and ignoring the ones that are being abused and especially the ones that are being abused under their own noses, ignoring it because that money is more important than the welfare of the child. When we come back, something that you're really going to like. How would you like to learn how to sue Child Protective Services? Think you can't? Think again. I'll tell you about cases that are currently going on in the state of Indiana. And yes, they are lawsuits. And when you hear how you can do it, Well, people like Terry Stigden are not exactly going to like me because I'm instructing you on how to do just that. We will be right back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Well, as promised in this final segment... We're going to go into how to sue Child Protective Services. Alexandra Gross 
Yes, that is person's last name. In an article entitled How to Sue Child Protective Services states exactly the steps needed to sue CPS. Alexandra Gross states that since CPS social workers are government agents, they cannot act in ways that violate your established civil rights. An overzealous CPS worker may violate your constitutional rights to due process or your protection from unreasonable search and seizure. You know, taking the kids under exigent circumstances. When this happens, you may be able to sue for monetary damages. Let me repeat that again. When this happen, when that happens, you may be able to sue for monetary damages. Now, as you notice in this episode, I've been calling out, singling out Terry J. Stickton. She's the current Department of Child Services director. She's currently under a lawsuit. And ever since she started, lawsuits have been constant with DCS on abuse. You can find it anywhere on the internet. Number one, building your case. Create a chronological outline of events. Beginning with your first encounter with CPS, draft an account of each encounter or communication you've had with CPS social workers and other staff members. That is including if you can videotape. They don't want that because if you videotape it, it is evidence. Evidence you can use against them in a lawsuit. Evidence you can also use under Title 18, United States Code 242, Deprivation of Rights Under Color of Law. I will say that again. Title 18, United States Code 242, Deprivation of Rights Under Color of Law. And yes, CPS can be sued under there. But can talk to a lawyer for more information. Now, write down now under building your case, write down the names, job titles, and direct contact information of every individual at CPS who contacted you or communicated with you in any way. You also want outlines of any other activities that have anything to do with your children or the reason CPS became involved with your children. And that is including any communication that your children had with a CPS officer at their schools. Any communication you may have had while on the street. Any suspicious activity like someone following you, taking your picture, anything that you find questionable. Two, gather any related documents and other evidence. You should already have been documenting every interaction you had with CPS. All of these records are now evidence you can use in your lawsuit. If you had written documents that you can no longer locate, make a note of them. CPS should have copies as well, and you can request them later. You also want to gather any documents that have anything to do with the care of your children. 
For example, if you're homeschooling your children, gather school schedules, assignments, and curricula, and make copies. Number three, consult an attorney. Hi, didn't I say to talk, talk to a lawyer? Civil rights lawsuits in federal court are notoriously complicated. If you've decided to sue CPS for violating your constitutional rights, you need an experienced civil rights attorney to represent you. Civil rights attorneys typically offer a free initial consultation, so you can use this opportunity to speak to several attorneys. They, that can help you choose the best attorney for your case. These lawsuits can drag on for a long time. Pick an attorney who is passionate about your case and who you get along with. You'll be spending a lot of time with them and discussing some potentially sensitive issues. If you have been brought up on criminal charges of child abuse or neglect, you may already have a criminal defense lawyer. Ask them for a referral to a civil rights attorney who can help you sue CPS. If you have been brought up on criminal charges due to CPS, do that. Talk to your public defender. Talk to whoever you have to to get a referral to a civil rights attorney. Now, that'll probably get back to the state, but hey, that can't be helped. They're going to know sooner or later. Four, identify an established right. The first hurdle you'll face is pointing to a specific established constitutional right that CPS violated while working with you and your children. This is a legal argument. Your attorney will review your documents and notes to determine which of your civil rights have been violated in your situation. This is part of the reason documenting all of your interactions with CPS is so important. Something that seems unfair to you may not necessarily rise to the level of a constitutional violation. However, something you thought insignificant might actually be a big deal. Number five, calculate your damages. You may have heard of parents who sued CPS for hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars. However, the amount of money must be directly related to the violation of your rights. Your attorney will start with actual damages if you have any. For example, if you and your spouse have been seeing a counselor and as a result of the trauma you experience from dealing with CPS, that expense may be considered actual damages. Additional damages, known as punitive damages, may be available to you if the actions of the CPS social workers involved in your case were particularly egregious. She goes into more detail, like initiating your lawsuit, uh, file a complaint. Have CPS serve with the complaint. Evaluate the response from CPS. Attend the summary judgment hearing. Also going to trial, send written questions and requests to CPS. 
depose the social workers involved. That is very, very important. What they say and what you have on record are two different things. Prepare for your own deposition. Answer questions from CPS. Ah, that's where you have to have your own your ducks in a row. Partic- participate in pre-trial hearings. That is interesting. Know what's going on before the trial. Evaluate any settlement offers. You know, they're going to say, hey, we'll give you $50,000. Talk to your lawyer before you settle. So, what can I say? Except, do your homework. If you feel you have been wronged, sue CPS. Sue them, but make sure you have the evidence, especially documents they have filled out, they have given you. Use that evidence against them. Let the court decide. Let your attorney deal with it. And above all, don't give up. You've heard what happened with the McMartin Preschool, with John Stoll. You've heard through this whole program, from the very beginning, they break up families. And I'd like to know who pissed in their oatmeal, who decided, hey, we're going to separate families. And for what reason? They'll say, in the best interest of the child or children. And we thought Hitler was a monster. I think Hitler wrote the book about CPS. So far, I've told you, what is your honest opinion? Is CPS your friend? Or is CPS there just to tear families apart and get as much money as possible? If you said the latter, I'd have to agree with you. Because it's not in the best interest of the child or children. It's in the best interest of the state. This has been David Shore for Corruption of Child Protective Services. In a future episode, I'm going to go over a document you may not even know about. And it ties right into this. Trust me when I tell you, when you hear about this, you are going to say, why didn't four countries jump on this document? I'll tell you right now, it constitutes human rights. And there are four countries that dictate to the rest of the world about human rights violations. Yet they may be the biggest human rights violators there are. Until next time, be good to yourselves, fight for your freedom, and fight for your children. And may God bless you.